from the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade here. Thanks so much for listening. We've got a busy hour coming your way. Jonathan Turley up early for us. We need him. Selena Zito, too, conservative columnist, nationally syndicated, sat down with John Fetterman, and uh, you'll be fascinated by her conclusions. She's on him for a while. She's located in Pennsylvania. I thought uh, Fetterman's given me a lot of encouragement of a politician who wants to get things done, uh, ripping on Menendez because he's, he's seemingly as corrupt as the day is long. And you have uh, going on the border, the disaster, which we all know it is, uh, while saying that Israel is in the right here and should be supported. That's not normal tra- traditional Democratic talking points. Selena Zito on what she found with the senator from Pennsylvania. But before we get to Jonathan Turley, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There is this sort of open war on Black progress, black history. Um, Claudine Gay, the president uh, of Harvard University, at least up until she resigned, um, is now the latest casualty of that. Uh, there you go, Joy Reid. Thanks. Racing to claim racism from ousted Harvard professor Claudine Ray to Al Sharpton. The plagiarist claims victim status and shouts sexism, racism for the scrutiny of her exit. I sense that dog wound hunt. We might just see massive elite education reform. Well, at least that's my hope. Number two. You know, I look at Donald Trump, and he's running on a lot of the things he promised to do in 2016, but then did not do. You look at any of these polls head-to-head with Biden. Trump, it's pretty much even. I defeat Biden by 17 points. Flooding to Trump, from House leadership to top club for growth conservatives, they seem to be racing to the former president with their endorsement, uh, with their endorsement. Uh, meanwhile, DeSantis and Haley seem to be going at each other, and Biden tries to paint him, meaning Donald Trump, as half Satan, half Hitler. Number one. The fact that we have one governor in the state of Texas who is refusing to cooperate with other, other governors, and it's a r- remarkable failure of governance to refuse to cooperate. There you go, Alejandro Mayorkas. What a disaster he is. The biggest Republican delegation ever went to the border on Wednesday to see for themselves what would be needed to fix it. Well, a massive deal could be taking place behind closed doors. Sadly, White House blaming Republicans while the millions pour in. That's laughably tragic. Jonathan Turley joins us now, constitutional law professor, Fox News contributor. Uh, He's over at GW. And Jonathan, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, Jonathan, first off, on the Mayorkas impeachment, is this more about just raking him over the coals and making him try to answer for what he's done? Because impeaching him is going to be impossible, right? Right. I, I think that this is really a non-starter, and it's a controversial use of impeachment because impeachment's really not there for people who do their job poorly. The question is whether uh, they can show that Mayorkas did something beyond simply being incredibly negligent and bad at his job. I think that's rather obvious. I mean, he he is a disaster uh, in his position. But in terms of high crimes and misdemeanors, they'll have to establish something beyond that. So I think that in, in some ways it is going to be a hearing that is at best going to try to get more information on Mayorkas. You know, he comes close at points because he has a sort of inherent dishonesty to him. I mean, when I've watched him in in hearings, 
uh, he really doesn't bat an eye uh, when uh, he, you know, shades the truth. The example of that was over the border agents when he basically threw the agents under the bus, uh, even though we now know that he was fully informed that there wasn't any flogging that occurred. That's fairly typical of the secretary. Uh, Jonathan, let's talk about the former president of the United States. He put, put a petition out yesterday to get back on the Colorado ballot if he ever actually left it. Technically, I'm not sure how you categorize it. Maine's trying to do the same thing. Others are lined up to see how the Supreme Court will rule. First off, what did you think of the president's brief? Well, I thought the brief is spot on in, in the sense that it raises all of the issues that undermine this theory. Uh, this is just a petition for review, so it's not the type of extensive brief that you see once the merits are under review. It's going to be a very interesting day because Colorado Supreme Court did something that was a bit curious in its opinion. It said that if this matter is pending before the Supreme Court and the court has not answered, that the default will kick in and that Trump will stay on the ballot. It's a little bit weird because they're the highest court in Colorado. Usually they leave it up to the Supreme Court to decide if they want to enjoin uh, because, after all, they're making a decision based on their own state authority. What it meant is that Colorado could avoid a review, which I think they would like, uh, by simply running out the clock. So if the Supreme Court just lets this go – his name will be on the ballot, and then Colorado could theoretically come in and say, we want you to moot this appeal because now nothing's going to change. He'll be on the ballot, so no harm, no foul. I hope that the court doesn't buy that uh, because this is being tried in a dozen states. Jonathan, uh, I don't know if you've picked up the New York Times yet, uh, but this morning there is David French wrote a column, and the headline is, The Case for Disqualifying Trump is Strong. Uh, They talked about the violence around his movement. Uh, They talked about, obviously, January 6th. And he says he spent the whole time looking at the briefs, and he believes that there's a strong case to not only kick him off Colorado but kick him out of the election. Yeah, I disagree. Uh, There's a host of problems with this theory. I mean, first is the question is, does it apply to the presidency? That's a good faith argument that it may not. It refers to a different uh, oath. It refers to a federal you know, official, which is usually not uh, how you refer to the president. The president appoints uh, federal officials. But the biggest problem for me is that the 14th Amendment, Section 3, deals with rebellion and, and or insurrection. This was neither. This was a riot. And at some point, mature minds have got to kick in here and say, look, he has never even been charged with incitement, let alone rebellion an insurrection. But more importantly, putting aside the fact that he hasn't been convicted, this wasn't a rebellion or insurrection. I know that the other side, you know, has really tried hard to portray it that way. But the American people don't even view it that way. Polls indicate that the that the public views this as a protest that became a riot. It doesn't excuse what happened. He says uh, there's a host of problems. He said uh, Trump was not trying to seize and hold the Capitol nor declare a breakaway republic was what they're saying. He says, but it's true that Trump was declaring wasn't declaring a breakaway republic. But he says he was attempting to seize and hold 
far more than the Capitol. He was trying to illegally retain control of the executive branch of the government. His foot soldiers didn't wear gray or deploy cannons, but they did storm the Capitol, something the Confederate Army could never accomplish. I I think that the hyperbole there got uh, became a bit of a runaway. I mean, look, we've had violent protests in this country. There were violent protests when Trump was inaugurated. And at that time, there were Democratic members that voted not to certify Donald Trump. Were they also rebellious? I mean, what they're suggesting here is really otherworldly. I mean, if, if this is going to be the new theory, it'll be replicated. It'll metastasize throughout the country. I've got a column out today in the New York Post talking about the new effort to bar Congressman Perry under the same theory. Democratic members of Congress have asked to bar dozens of Republican members of Congress under the same theories. That's the slippery slope that we're about to step on. And you realize how dangerous this is for both sides, because we're already seeing with impeachment and uh, sequester, um, you know, we see with the Supreme Court justice used to need 60 votes. Now, thanks to Harry Reid, they need just over 50 votes, simple majority. We're seeing now with the impeachment being used so haphazardly on Trump. Now you could argue that even though I want to see the investigation, we're heading towards that way with Biden. Now, all of a sudden, if you're kicking Trump off, now I watch Ron DeSantis the other day and says, you know what? I think that Joe Biden, the way he's let 8 million people on the border, I think that's that should make him uh, ineligible to run again for reelection. I think that's impeachable. You know, and I'm, this is how runaway this whole thing has become. Yes, it's a tit for tat politics. And the terrible thing is that this is the most successful and stable democracy in the history of the world. And yet after this long, successful run, you have blind advocates today trying to introduce an instability in that system that could destroy it. I mean, this is the type of theory that can destroy a democracy. And, you know, there's a poll shows that the majority of people do not believe in this disqualification. Some 40 percent do. But it shows how dangerous this is. We are a divided country, and you have people who are trying to win this election in the courts. What about people who say it doesn't matter? You know, I can't get concerned with the ramifications of making the right decision. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> I think that that's part of the this is a failure of leadership, but it's also a crisis of faith. You know, we've lost faith uh, as a nation, not just in the Constitution, but in each other. You know, that's what the Constitution is. It's an article of faith. That is, we say that we're going to play by the rules. We're going to support each other's right to free speech. We're going to support democracy regardless of the outcome. But what you see here is the effect of that crisis of faith. These are faithless people who are saying, let's just prevent people from voting for Trump. And it shows that blind rage, but it also shows that they've lost faith in the thing that defines us. Hunter Biden is looking to get on the offensive, and he's putting together a documentary from his perspective on what exactly his last few years have been like leading up to his trial. It also is clear that this uh, benefactor has given him at least $4 million. Not sure exactly why, but I think that probably uh, we might be able to get to the bottom of it. What kind of what is Hunter Biden's January look like? <laughs> it does not look particularly good. Uh, the House is moving towards a contempt resolution, which will have to go through committee and then go to the floor. It'll be interesting again to see Democrats vote unanimously against it. You could not have 
a more obvious act of contempt. These are the Democrats that just voted for a series of contempt sanctions against Trump officials. Well, here you've got someone who literally stood outside the Capitol building and effectively taunted the committee, refused to go in under subpoena. And yet when that resolution hits the floor, you're likely to not have a single Democrat who says, you know what, this is wrong. Indeed, you have Congressman Swalwell who helped facilitate this. He helped facilitate an act of contempt. And those same Democrats are going to take no action against him either. You pointed us to the now from the press secretary coming out and saying the president was fully aware of what his son was going to do. And that's legally problematic. It is. And the committees are now looking into that. And I think that it's an obvious problem. We don't know what the president and his son discussed. But we also don't know how much the White House staff was involved in these uh, discussions. But what Hunter Biden did is a federal crime. And during with the Trump people, Congress rapidly held people like Bannon in contempt. And the Department of Justice set a record in getting him into court and getting him convicted, it seems. So the question now is, even though the city floats on a sea of hypocrisy, whether anyone is going to say, all right, I've got to apply the same standard, even with the president's son. And when it comes to the president, if he encouraged his son to commit a crime, it's serious because this crime is not just contempt. He was, if that's true, and we don't know if it's true, but if he encouraged his son to show this, commit this act of contempt, he was talking to a witness who was being called to give evidence against himself against the president. Not Hunter was being called about his father, not about Hunter Biden, about Joe Biden. So if Joe Biden participated in encouraging him to commit contempt, he was encouraging a witness from appearing who could give evidence against himself. Uh, and lastly, from your experience, uh, and this is unique, we have an impeachment inquiry that's going to go on for, a, you know, we got, it's got to get, we're in 10 months now, we get a new Congress. What type of timing are we looking at? When do they do you think that it's reasonable to think that they have to make a decision when an inquiry actually becomes an impeachment? Well, they have a little bit of runway here because they're going to have they're very likely going to take a trip to the courts on some of these witnesses. But ideally, they would move within a couple of months uh, because you're going to have to bring this to the floor. But timing is essential here. They want to make sure that they have a complete case. And one of the complaints I made against the Democrats is they used what I called a snap impeachment. They had no hearing at all. They had no record at all. They just went straight to the floor and impeached an American president. That's not what the Republicans are doing here. They're doing it the correct way, which is what I said in the first Biden impeachment hearing, is that this is how it's supposed to be done. You know, you, you hold this inquiry and you create that factual record. I think they'll need a couple of months to complete that record, but they're making strides now. There's a lot of people who are scheduled to come before the committee and fill in these missing gaps. If they get this and we see it's already damning and and the evidence that people are talking about that that goes beyond reproach. And I watch the other channels to get a perspective and they, they do have a sense. Now they're admitting that Hunter's a bad guy and got himself into a lot of trouble but they, they are not quite ready to say the president was there along the way. How much he knew is something that they're willing to admit. If you get there and say this is bad, 
But I don't think we've got it through impeachment. Politically, uh, Jonathan, this will be my last question. I'll stop bothering you. Politically, does it look like a Biden victory? I don't think you come out of this claiming victory uh, if you fall just short of the impeachment standard. It's already damaging Biden. You can see that in the polls, and it should. You, the, the Bidens were engaged in raw influence peddling. But the key for the House is to be able to control the narrative. They've got the media, which has been trying every different rationale and narrative to obstruct this. The key for the Republicans is to remind the public, influence peddling is corrupt. Yes. That form of corruption. And, and if the president knew about it, he's corrupt. Jonathan Turley, you're not. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Uh, Appreciate your insight. Jonathan Turley, thank you. Your call's next. Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here on this Thursday. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. You know, I look at Donald Trump, and he's running on a lot of the things he promised to do in 2016, but then did not do. Build the wall, deport illegal aliens, drain the swamp hold people like Hillary accountable. We don't have time uh, to go and not deliver on all these things. That is uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, a little bit frustrated, it sounds, about how he's running for president and not getting the traction he thought to begin with. Now, we're going to have him on tomorrow. You're going to hear that interview because it's coming out of crunch time. He's got town halls, debates, and he's got a caucus. Iowa, he's supposed to do very well. Because New Hampshire, he hasn't put as much time in, close to enough time in Nikki Haley. On the real clear average, he's fallen into second. And he and Nikki Haley are exchanging blows, including ads, but they're not attacking Trump. I get it. Chris Christie does not get it. I'll play some of that uh, as we move on uh, and talk about the election maybe in the next 15 minutes. I have Selena Zito next. But I understand it because you could be angry or kind of like Donald Trump, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. You have to find a way to get his voters to vote for you. And when you insult Trump, they take it personally. you got to be better than Trump. So then you have to find that line. He tried going after Trump directly. It didn't help him. He's trying this now. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. The unlikely voice of reason on the back end of 2023 being John Fetterman was certainly not on my end of the year bingo card. I am pleasantly surprised, but I have to say this. A lot of folks are saying that he's sounding like a conservative or he's sounding like a Republican. I don't think so. I think he's sounding like a moderate Democrat or maybe just a good American. Tommy Lahren uh, reflecting on what Senator Fetterman sounding a little like Joe Manchin, where at the border, they both admit, like Joe Manchin, Democrats, the border is an absolute mess, not acceptable, that Israel needs to be supported, no no breaking point, that Senator Menendez is as corrupt as, uh, as George Santos, if not worse, and just mocking him, the fact that he's still there. Just some of the things that shocked me anyway, and I'm happy for Senator Fetterman as a person that he seems to be on the on – the, uh, on the upside after that stroke. Selena Zito is a, a nationally syndicated columnist, often critical of Fetterman as a candidate. How does she feel now after doing a column on him and getting a chance to talk to him? Selena Zito joins us now. Selena, welcome back. Good morning. 
exciting. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. So tell me about the John Fetterman you knew and the one you now observe and see. So um, if listeners don't know, I live in western Pennsylvania, so but covering national politics. And so I've covered John Fetterman since 2005 when he won the mayor's race for Braddock by one absentee ballot. So, you know, he's always been sort of this interesting character. And for years as I covered him, he was never sort of anybody's guy, right? He wasn't the Democrats guy. He wasn't the progressive guy. He was all over the place and very reflective and also very reminiscent of the old-fashioned moderate Democrats. He was he was uh, socially uh, left on other things, but center on on other uh, many other things too. Just on fracking and manufacturing alone, and 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 heavy regulations impact on those industries. But when he had his stroke, and 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 now we know, as he has told us and detailed, he was suffering from depression. His message wasn't really the John Fetterman I had known. And and so I had been very harsh on him regarding transparency during the election in 2022, not personally, but on transparency. But as he sort of, um, you know, in January of last year, admitted to depression, admitted himself, and, and over the course of time in that past year, has started to regain his sense of self and sense of who he was and who he is, I'm seeing the Fetterman that I knew for 20 years reemerge as, as a center, center-left, moderate Democrat that he had been for 20 years. So I want you to hear Selena Zito uh, also observing like me, listen, I don't care what party you are. I want to think do things that are good for the country. It seems like Fetterman's doing good things for his country, and he's in a he's in a very purple state. And a lot of people think it could, you know, that McCormick could pick up that seat. I want to talk to you about that. The other seat against Casey will be tough, and that oh, there's a lot of Republicans there. They're not happy with Joe Biden. Here's Senator Fetterman on TikTok. You've been very vocal in your full support for Israel. I see the Israeli flag behind you in your office. There, you've been very clearly arguing that Hamas bears responsibility for the tragedy of what's going on in Gaza. Why do you think so many younger people, especially in your party, see it differently? I, I, really, I, really, don't, I really don't know. Uh, I, I do know that a lot of people are getting their perspective from TikTok. And I think if you're kind of getting your perspective on the world on TikTok, it's going to tend to be kind of warped or not reflective of the, the history and, and actually the way things absolutely are. And what is very clear is, is that Hamas started this, and they actually broke the, the ceasefire, and they attacked uh, and murdered uh, babies, children, women, uh, attacked a, a music uh, a concert and everything. It's, it's, it's outrageous. Of course. You know, you can't get a Democrat to admit that TikTok should be banned. We know that it should be, but they want to use it for the election. So that's pretty amazing, yeah. don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. So here's the thing people don't know about Fetterman. He has always been very politically astute. Uh, in 2016, in an interview with me, you know, we were, I think we were in Erie, or, uh, and he said, you know, pe- people don't understand this, but Trump could win our state. So he understood that, and, and a lot of Democrats were really mad at him for saying that. 
But he was he, obviously he wasn't wrong. He's also very politically astute in in um, when he ran for, for lieutenant governor and for the first time in history upended a sitting lieutenant governor in a primary. How did he do and it I, though? When he ran, did he run as a moderate? He, he ran. He's always been all over the place. Okay. But yeah. If you were if you were putting him on a scale, I would say he was moderate. Wow. And that's how he ran. And, 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 and I think the thing that people don't understand in Pennsylvania, there's a couple things going on that's sort of pretty granular but important. In Allegheny County, which is where he lives, the first and only uh, um, district attorney to run and win against a Soros Fund district attorney happened in, in his home county. You know, so I'm sure he's looking around and saying, you know, (laughs) um, my 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 state is is pretty moderate. It's it's not far left and it's not far right, and and so I'm going to you know pay attention as to where my positions fall. I'm sure that that's something that 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 goes through his head. Uh, We're talking to Selena Zito. I I can. Uh, would you say conservative columnist or just nationally syndicated consultant? Would you call yourself a conservative, Selena? Yeah, just a columnist. I cover everybody. So here's Senator Fetterman on uh, on Senator Menendez, who I can't believe that we have not heard anything from Schumer, nothing from Cory Booker. You heard about this latest allegation for a $5,000 watch. He was going to say some nice things about Cutter. That's the accusation. And also the gold bars that were found in his closet. Here's what Fetterman said. If you expel somebody like, you know, uh, George Santos, how can you allow somebody like, uh, you know, Senator Menendez remain in the Senate as well, too? Because I promise you that one of the main major differences between uh, representative, former Representative Santos and Senator Menendez is $300 million of munitions, you know, with Egypt as well, too. And uh, Santos is never uh, accused of being a, a foreign agent. Can you believe that? I mean, that sounds like Jim Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it's, it's, it's applying common sense to a problem, and that is what Fetterman has always been very good at doing. And, and he, he, like I said, for years before he was in national spotlight, you can't imagine the amount of times he got in trouble with Democrats for, for saying things that wasn't all that popular among, you know, Democratic orthodoxy. So I'm not surprised uh, I, I I wasn't sure who the John Fetterman of 2022 was because he just didn't seem it, it just that message just did not seem like him. Um, but I believe we have a return to the guy that I had been covering, and and so I think what's happening right now is now people are seeing this on a national level, and they're like, oh, is this is you know m- m- making um, remarks. Um, like, did the stroke do this to him? No, stroke didn't do this to him. This is who he's always been. But you just didn't see his his uh, service, his public service, in in the way in under the microscope. Uh, Selena, uh, lastly, when we look at your state, uh, Dave McCormick is really an impressive candidate on paper, and I actually met him in person. You know, he's got the the West Point background, self made multimillionaire. He also worked at Treasury under Hank Paulson, and he's also been at war. So he's got this rich experience. He does not need to work anymore. He is a Pennsylvania background. 
He didn't just say, you, you know, anyone has a problem with me, I'm divorced. I like to visit my kids in Connecticut, guilty as charged. But he does live in Pennsylvania. So what are your thoughts about, because you're there, what are your yeah. thoughts about him against an established candidate like Casey? Well, the thing about, by the way, it's, it's just interesting that you mentioned McCormick because I'm literally pulled off the side of the road and driving to spend a couple of days with him in Bloomsburg, where his family is from, um, when, mm-hmm. where he grew up. Uh, but, you know, look, Casey has never faced a serious, well-funded um, candidate since uh, he first ran in 2006. Uh, and, and every year that he has won, and every six years that he has won uh, the Senate seat have always been very, very good years for Democrats. So you take those two instances and you combine them with McCormick's, um, his successes in his life, and this is going to be a battle royale. And, and I don't – here's what I don't predict will happen. I don't think this will get personal. I think McCormick will stick with running on policy and running on issues. And and that is is also something you've never seen in any Republican that Casey has faced. And so, you know, Casey has only lost one race in his life. And that was when he ran in a primary race against Ed Rendell for governor in 2002. In that race, Casey was it was a very personal race, and, and, and he went very negative, and he's never done that again, and he lost that race. Nobody expected Casey to lose that race. Rendell lost and won that race, um, and so it'll be interesting to see how Casey adjusts to running against McCormick, who, who is going to be running on policy, 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 and achievement, and, and so I think it's going to be a fascinating race and one I'm really excited to cover. Right. And I guess, uh, do you think Joe Biden's popularity or lack thereof will play a role? I, oh, I think I think both Biden and Trump, if Trump is the eventual nominee, I think, and, and if Biden remains the um, Democrat um, um, nominee or, you know, pr- yeah. um, incumbent president, I think both men will impact this race. It's hard to tell right now who has the more negative drag on the on the candidate but i suspect at this moment biden is probably the worst problem for casey over trump being a problem for mccormick do you, from what you can tell just from selena zito's point of view is uh is trump who won pennsylvania stronger in 2024 than he was in 2016 or not uh that's hard to tell right now brian i i see I see a lot of so this is what I got from Trump supporters in in my home state. They loved him when he was president. They loved his policies. But there is a fracturing on personality, on his comportment. And that is sort of his biggest challenge. Conversely though, Biden is shedding voters in my state um faster than Trump's voters being hesitant. So I would give Trump an edge in Pennsylvania, but no matter what, no matter who wins Pennsylvania, it is going to be close. Trump won it by 41,000 votes in 2016. Biden won it by a little more in 2020. It's just going to be very, very close. Selena, look forward to your uh, column after spending uh, considerable time with Dave McCormick. Selena Zito, thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for having me. You got it. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. When we come back, I'll be able to squeeze in some of your calls. Also, bring you up to date on what's happening in the Middle East with these targeted killings and the massive explosion in Iran. Things are beyond heating up. Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I have not seen any evidence that uh, Claudine Gay was uh, guilty of true plagiarism. This is part of a well-orchestrated, misleading smear of Claudine Gay and of Harvard University. Oh, my goodness. Uh, That is a guy named Randall Kennedy, a Harvard law professor. He signed a petition supporting Claudine Gay, who, uh, after her ridiculous testimony, farcical, uh, where the University of Pennsylvania president just said, I resign, I quit. And then she said, no, I'm not. And then he said, let me just look in your background. Well, it turns out you plagiarized for your Ph.D., it doesn't seem readable. Not sure anybody read it. She admits to, uh, to taking unattributed quotes from people, maybe even ideas from people. That seems to be plagiarism on everyone else's definition. But no, it's easier to call racism. Wouldn't that be something special? Here's Christopher Rufo, who helped uncover uh, the plagiarism problems that finally got her to resign. But listen, don't feel bad for her. She's keeping under $890,000 salary and stays on the faculty. We're probably making speeches on this soon. Cut 28. The AP, uh, which used to be the Associated Press, seems to have morphed into an organization called the Associated Progressives. They've been saturated in the same ideology, uh, but I'll never back down. And in fact, uh, uh, pushing out Claudine Gay, toppling the president of Harvard, for a journalist like me is a big win. Uh, And if I were on the left, uh, this would be Pulitzer Prize winning material. And in fact, uh, I've uh, just pledged uh, an initial $10,000 to establish a plagiarism hunting fund (laughs) to go after more Ivy League professors and administrators to discover whether they too have been plagiarizing. Because Jesse, what we've heard from these professors is that everyone does it. It's not that bad. Right. Uh, let's see if everyone does it. And it's not that bad. Let's see if everyone is if these professors are holding their students to the same standard that they don't hold themselves. Now, Claudine Gay wrote a New York Times op ed at which time she says this. My character and intelligence have been impugned. My commitment to fighting anti-Semitism has been questioned. My inbox has been flooded with invective and death threats. I've been called. I'm sure. Uh, my, uh, by the N-word, my hope is that by stepping down, I will deny my demagogues the opportunity to further weaponize my presidency in the campaign to undermine the ideals animating Harvard since its founding excellence, openness, and independence and truth. Harvard's got huge problems, and other people are saying it, including your billion-dollar donors, and they want to blame conservatives for your lazy plagiarism. And to me, that is ridiculous. No one's buying it. There are real racist issues of racism in this country and around the world. Why you? Why play it when it doesn't belong? And everybody knows it doesn't belong. Al Sharpton is out in front of Ackerman's, uh, Ackerman's place of business. This uh, Bill, a billionaire, Ken Ackerman, who came out and said, 
and came out and said, there's got to be a change. I want MIT's president gone, too. And if the Columbia president showed up, she would have embarrassed herself as well. Uh, she should be gone, too. Almost all these elite institutions who don't see the uh, the error in not protecting Jewish students on campus and supporting this pro-Palestinian mindset, whether it's in the curriculum or it's in clubs or it's uh, uh, implied through the faculty, it should be replaced. And we're seeing it right now. But I get this, 72% of young people under 30 uh, believe that Israel's in the wrong in all this and support the Palestinians, which is insane. Do you know who else supports the Palestinians? Huge numbers of Joe Biden's White House staff. The young people are out protesting in front of the building, right? And then yesterday they wrote an open letter demanding that he change policies and stop supporting Israel in this effort in Gaza. If you're working for me... And I got that letter. Everybody who signed it is gone. I'd rather have no one than were some people working against me. And that's what happens, I imagine, when you go to check boxes on cross-sections of people's nationality and ethnic background and possibly their uh, sexuality, as opposed to people who want to be there, support you, and know you. That's my advice to President Biden. Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. From 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, it's Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad to be with you for this, the second time in 20, third time in 2024. Uh, this is going to be a big hour. we got Mark Thiessen here, former chief presidential speechwriter, syndicated columnist, Washington, excuse me, Fox News, uh, Washington Post columnist, I should say, and then Fox News contributor. Tom Mobley will be with us, former U.S. Undersecretary of Navy and author of a brand new book, Vectors, Heroes, Villains, and the Heartbreak on the Ridge of the U.S. Navy. i got to get his take on the Houthi rebels in the Red Sea. And we'll do a simulcast this hour, Stuart Varney and FPN. Uh, we'll talk about that. And there's a lot going on. We're covering as it breaks. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There is this sort of open war on black progress, black history. Um, Claudine Gay, the president uh, of Harvard University, at least up until she resigned, um, is now the latest casualty of that. You got to be kidding me. Uh, Racing to claim racism from ousted Harvard professor Claudine Gay to Al Sharpton. The plagiarist claims victim status and shouts sexism, racism for because of the scrutiny, because of her testimony and her ridiculous papers a very thin resume, very thin body of work, a lot of it plagiarized, and you call racist? You call racism? Number two. You know, I look at Donald Trump, and he's running on a lot of the things he promised to do in 2016, but then did not do. You look at any of these polls head-to-head with Biden. Trump, it's pretty much even. I defeat Biden by 17 points. <laughs> There you go. Flooding to Trump from uh, uh, flooding to Trump from the House leadership to the Club for Growth conservatives. They seem to be racing to the former president with their endorsement. While DeSantis and Haley say not so fast. And Biden tries to paint Trump as half Satan, half Hitler. Number one. The fact that we have one governor in the state of Texas who is refusing to cooperate with other other governors, and it's a remarkable failure of governance to refuse to cooperate. 
There you go, Alejandro Mayorkas. What a disaster. The biggest Republican delegation ever went to the border on Wednesday to see for themselves what would be needed to fix it. While a massive deal could be taking place behind closed doors, sadly, White House is blaming Republicans for the millions pouring in. It is laughable and tragic. And, of course, they're trying to impeach uh, Mayorkas. They're not going to be able to impeach him, but they do want to embarrass him and expose him. Is this the best way? Mark Thiessen has seen it all from the inside and out. Mark, welcome back. Good to be with you, Brian. Happy New Year. Uh, Same to you, sir. So do you think this method, uh, the approach of impeaching Mayorkas is the right one? I don't know if impeaching him is the right thing, but for him to say that accuse anyone of a failure of governance is is kind of laughable. I mean, if we want a textbook example of a failure of governance, it's what's with Biden, the administration on the southern border. I mean, just keep in mind, Joe Biden has the exact same laws on the book that Donald Trump and Barack Obama had when they secured the border. He's just choosing not to enforce them. There's no record. There's no need for Congress to pass anything except to force him to do something, to force a change of policy. That's what we're having right now is Congress actually requiring the president to do to enforce the laws that are already on the books. There's no authorities he needs. I mean, remember, they accused Barack Obama being on the left of being the deporter in chief because he had record deportations. Biden has has shut down deportations, almost nothing. And he's letting all these people in on top of it. So, you know. The, the idea that anyone else is responsible for a failure of governance is almost comical. So this is the statement from Andrew Bates, a White House spokesperson. House Republicans have obstructed his reform proposal and consistently voted against his unprecedented border security funding year after year, hamstringing our border security in the name of extreme partisan demands. What are you talking about? He's got 26 percent approval rating. Uh, that's because people don't believe things like that. Now I'm talking about on the border. Yeah, everybody. I mean, people aren't stupid. This is the problem with that kind of spin is that people people know that Donald Trump was president and the border was secure. And now it's not. <laughs> and they know whose fault it is. And they knew they know who who uh, who's responsible for it. And you know who changed the policies. And so, you know, to, to tell people, you know, it's almost it adds insult to injury. It's like not only have they unleashed this flood of people on the southern border, but they've actually, you know, then they, then they insult them by telling them that it's not our problem. It's actually the Cong- Republican Congress, which has been in power for, you know, less than two years. They're, we're, they're the ones responsible. I mean, first of all, for the first two years of his presidency, he had unified control of government. He controlled the House and the Senate and the White House. So how can you blame Republicans in Congress for the flood of, uh, of, the, of uh, the, the absolute disaster on our southern border? Well, he says he put together a proposal right when he entered office, and no one picked it, picked it up. Uh, who was in charge? I think Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House, and I think Chuck Schumer was uh, the majority leader in the Senate. Who did he want to pick it up? Uh, true. So uh, I talked to uh, was going back and forth with Senator Langford, as you know, is heading up the Republican effort to do some, some significant reform on the on the border. Yeah. And H.R. two is what the what the House wants, and what the Senate Senate uh, Republicans are also determined to get substantial progress made. If you can't even even if you can't get to H.R. two because they want to get close, uh, they said they negotiated every day during Christmas except for Christmas Day and Christmas Eve. And the day after. And besides that, they want every day. They said progress has been hard, but they are making it. And Senator Murphy seems to be getting permission to do legitimate negotiation. If you if if something emerges from this deal, are you on the camp, Mark Thiessen, that Republicans should go out of the way to fix the border or should they worry about making Biden look good? 
I, I think they got to fix the border. I mean, that's what responsibility of govern, uh, governance is. And I think they're doing the exact right thing, including pro-Ukraine uh, Republicans who are standing firm on this and saying this is this is their leverage to get them to stop this. I mean, I, you would think that Joe Biden would want to fi- to do something to fix the border because wouldn't it be better for him? If you would think by, by next November we didn't have like we're not we're we're still breaking records of people crossing the border. Uh, you know, uh, illegally, it, it just seems it seems like that would be a good thing to help him win back independence. Uh, but, you know, but also it would be a good thing if Ukraine had won the war by then, too. But he doesn't seem to be giving them the weapons to do that either. So I think Republicans are uh, are doing the right thing. Um, it's always the right thing to do to, to do the right policy, regardless of who gets the credit. Um, and I don't think anybody's going to turn around and say if, they, if we fix this thing that Joe Biden is the reason why it happened. So you, you understand, I'm sure you're following what's going on. It's the move, the political move of the day uh, that I think brought us to this moment where we could have some legitimate change is Governor Abbott. When he said, you know, my problem, I got a problem here, but you're going to feel my pain. And he put those migrants with their permission on buses and sent them to the cities they wanted to go to, D.C., Chicago, and most of all, New York. And now the sanctuary city status, now they have them flooding these cities. 10,000 in Chicago is too much for them to handle. State of emergency in Massachusetts. In New York, over 100,000 still here. Over 160,000 came in. And they blame Greg Abbott. So listen to Abbott's response, cut 12. What we have found is the hypocrisy of the mayor of New York, of the mayor of Chicago, of the mayor of Denver and uh, of California, things like that, where they say, oh, we want to be a sanctuary city. We want to provide all these free benefits to migrants. But then they start complaining when Texas starts starts, uh, dropping them off uh, into their states or into their communities. Listen, this is a responsibility caused by the Joe Biden administration. And these Democrat mayors, they need to wake up to the reality that their communities are going to continue to face challenges, including more buses and planes, unless and until Joe Biden starts enforcing the immigration laws of the United States. So they so Mayor Adams says, I'm going to give certain I'm going to have certain criteria now. You can bring him in only during certain times. I need to know the manifest. I got to OK it. I got to make sure the bus is OK. So know what the buses start doing? Stopping in New Jersey. You know, what the New Jersey governor said. Put him on a train to New York City. Do you believe this? I love this. First of all, this is, you know, this is so beautiful. And Greg Abbott should get like the Presidential Medal of Freedom once the Republicans take over again for doing this, because these liberal li- liberals in these big cities are they what they do is they they institute policies that hurt the rest of the country and and they're insulated from them. They don't have to live with the consequences. They can say, we're a sanctuary city, uh, you know, and you, all you Republicans who are actually dealing with the problem of illegal immigration in communities, you're a bunch of racists. Well, guess what? If you want to be a sanctuary city, then be a sanctuary city. Then, then you know, put put your money where your mouth is and take care of these migrants. Uh, that I think it's great that Greg, Greg Abbott called them on that. And you know what? No, we don't need permission to bring them to, to New York. Anybody can get Anybody who's here, you know, if you're here uh, legitimately, according to the Biden administration, they've released you into the country. They've given you a, par- a parole and a, and a court date. You can go to anywhere in the country you want. Why, why do you have to live in Eagle Pass? Who the, you know, why, why can't they live in Chicago and all the places? And you know what? If, you, if it's too much of a problem, then why are you putting them up in fancy hotels and doing all this stuff? You know, they, they, I remember they, they set up that camp on Randall's Island, and they brought the migrants over, and they were like, no, we don't want this. 
you know, don't, I mean, I'm sorry, nobody's told you you have to put the, to pay for them and to, to live in nice hotels and take care of the, their food and give them stipends and give them cell Nuts. phones and all the other stuff like that. Then don't do it. Maybe they'll go home if they don't get the free stuff. And, you know, in but, California, but, they're giving them free health care. Yeah. Well, good. I love that. Go, everybody go to California. I th- I, you know, that will solve Greg, uh, Newsom's problem of the net out-migration in the, uh, of, of California. Perfect. All the, all the productive people with jobs and wealth and who can't, who can't understand it like that, they'll all move to Florida and to the red states, and they can take all the illegal migrants and, and take care of them. Uh, and take care of the unproductive members of society. I think it's be- I think it's a beautiful trade. Good for good for Gavin. All right. So we know so- certain things are changing. We're waiting for our first caucus now, weeks away instead of months and years. It's where now officially in twenty four, nobody could say stop talking about it. It's it's upon us. And if you look yep. at the polls, if you look at the polls, uh, Trump's got a substantial win in Iowa and New Hampshire. But I'm wary of the polls. People are under all of a sudden want to trust polls as if they're games. And the, did you go in for the playoffs? To me, polls are just polls. But if things hold the way they are, Trump is in a very strong spot. Uh, and he just picked up the endorsement of the entire House leadership and a senator, Tom Cotton, uh, over the last few days. And it seems like they want to have a truce with the club for growth. Your thoughts about where this race is now? So here's the question Republican primary voters have to ask, should be should be asking themselves as they go into the into the polls. Do you want a toss up or a landslide in November? Because Joe Biden is the most vulnerable sitting president ever to run for re-election in modern history. He is the most unpopular president. You go back to the 538 average, and you can see on every day of the presidency, compare him to every president going back to Harry Truman. He's the most unpopular president going back to Harry Truman. You used to have to say, except for Jimmy Carter, he's now 11 points less popular than Jimmy Carter was at this point in his presidency. And yet, and if you look at the real clear politics average, Donald Trump is, uh, is uh, within the margin of error, tied statistically tied with him against the most unpopular president in the history of the country. Whereas Nikki Haley is up by 17 points in the Wall Street Journal poll. I think it's 14 points in the in the uh, in the Quinnipiac poll. I don't have the polls in front of me. It's a dozen points. If you look at the New York Times Siena poll, she crushes Joe Biden in every one of the swing states. If we were to nominate someone like Nikki Haley, it would be a landslide victory for the Republicans. And instead, Republicans are rallying around Donald Trump, understandably, because you know there's a, there's a sense that he's under siege, and they and we rally around our own when 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 the left is going after him. But the question Republican voters have to ask themselves is: Do you want to risk four more years of Biden and potentially and not potentially almost certainly come up President Kamala Harris because he's not going to make it five years. He's not, he's not going to be president in, in, you know at the end of his term. She's going to be assume the presidency at some point. Do you want that? Is that really worth risking to to avenge Donald Trump, or do you want to win? Because we Couple, can have yeah. a slam dunk victory well, uh, if we want it. Your, your point's solid, and, uh, and there's no no question about it. But if you look at some other things that are going on, it's kind of interesting. If you look at the black vote, uh, that went from 80-plus percent to 63 percent. For That's significant. Uh, for the young vote, Trump now outpolls by four points in the last Suffolk poll – uh, the last uh, Suffolk poll, I believe, of uh, Joe Biden. In yep. so, I mean, in every, almost every single area, out to, including uh, Hispanics, which, by the way, mm-hmm. they told us ten years ago that uh, no, no Hispanics would be voting for Republicans uh, if you yep. if you talk tough on the border. That's how wrong that was. So you see individually him surging, and you see how bad things are going overseas, 
and economically, and they compare both records on Sunday, it seems like every number goes Trump's way. But your point holds that you believe it's too close. Barely. I mean, so first of all, the, the, every election tightens right before the vote, right? So right now, people are expressing their dissatisfaction to the pollsters with Joe Biden's presidency, and that's fine. But you know what? He was the most unpopular president since World War II before the 2022 midterms, and look what happened. Where was the red wave? I mean, this thing is going to tighten, and it's possible that Donald Trump could win. I'm not saying that it's impossible that he could win, but it's going to be close. And but do you think it's and, likely and, Trump wins right now? No, I do not. I do not. Because I, th- because I think the problem is this election is going to be decided by a few hundred thousand swing voters in five states. So it doesn't matter that the Republicans are rallying around him and are enthusiastic about him. The Democrats are going to rally around Biden because they're not going to vote for Trump because they're dissatisfied with Biden. And so, so there's going to be – there's going to be – towards the election, there's going to be a coming home in both parties – uh, towards their candidate, and it's going to be swing voters. And the problem is, is that Donald Trump has made himself toxic with swing voters in swing states. And and they may look, some of them may look and say, this is so bad, I can't take four more years, I'll just hold my nose and vote for Trump. But do you want to have a nominee where, this, where the independents who are going to decide the election, you're asking them to hold their nose and right. vote for your candidate? Or do you want to have somebody that they will enthusiastically support and back? which is what Nikki Haley would offer. I mean, a couple again, of things. Landslide, uh, do you want a landslide or a toss-up? It's that simple. So you have not been won over by what's happened over the last six, seven months. You just believe that uh, you believe what you believe. I, I, just, I just believe the numbers that I'm seeing is that, yeah. is that Donald Trump is, was a great president and did amazing things in office in his first you're not, And, and people should know at home, you're not an anti-Trumper. You're not. Never, you I'm talk to Trump all the time. Defending Donald Trump than anybody yeah. in the history of the Washington Post. <laughs> well, that doesn't say much. <laughs> I want to win. I want to win. I want a guaranteed victory. All right. Mark Thiessen, it's always great talking to you. I love your insight. Even if we uh, I'm I'm more uh, I'm more getting won over by these numbers because Joe Biden's performed so badly. Mark Thiessen, thanks. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, guys, coming up. It's coming up uh, faster than you think. Two o'clock in the afternoon, uh, Central Time. It's Joliet, uh, Joliet, Illinois. And I'm going to be on stage uh, talking about winning the war on history, talking about my books in a fun, interactive way. Uh, the tickets are selling great. It's going to be streamed on Fox Nation if you're not in the area. But if you're in the area, I'm going to get there early, VIP opportunities, sign all the past books, and answer all your questions uh, about being here 25-plus years, about this radio show, about One Nation on Saturdays uh, at 9 o'clock now, and as well as being on the road with Teddy and Booker T, uh, how two American icons blaze a path to racial equality. Now we're talking about slavery again. These guys both lived through it. They, they were born uh, during the Civil War. So uh, what they were able to talk about, write about, I was able to put in that book. But I'll bring you through everything, uh, through, our, through our beginning to our past. Listen, you're now coming off a day with the holidays with your family, many of which have differing views. But one thing we used to agree on is our past and then how we've improved to become this superpower. Uh, now we're disagreeing on our past. And I want to straighten everybody out and arm you for your next interaction and also entertain, inform. It's going to be a patriotic day. So it's going to be on Fox Nation, but go to BrianKilme.com and order tickets. And uh, if you can get there early, there's VIP opportunities. And I'll sign all the books that you get. With every ticket, you get a book. 
How cool is that? Fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Right now, what I find is that the more this conflict spills over into adjacent regions, the more it has a great potential to unite previously sectarian divides within the Islamic world. Um, so what, what I see from this attack, and of course the intelligence will be forthcoming, I hope very soon, to reveal the indications of, of who committed these atrocities. Likely, these are detractors who are trying to stoke further flames to pull Iran directly into conflict with Israel and with the adjacent areas. That is uh, Cameron Hamilton, former Navy SEAL, talking about the explosion at the death, uh, the, the uh, I guess the, I guess you would call the resting place, the monument where uh, Soleimani's body was held. So they were commemorating four years since he was taken out by a U.S. drone. Uh, and uh, there was two explosions. It killed over 100 people and wounded over 100 people. And um, almost everyone agrees it's not Israel, although it's easy for Iran to blame that. They don't really blow up civilians. That's not what they do. Uh, joining us now to discuss this and some of the challenges at sea in his brand-new book, uh, Tom Modley, former U.S. Undersecretary of the Navy and author of Vectors, Heroes, Villains, and Heartbreak on the Bridge of the U.S. Navy. Uh, Mr. Secretary, welcome back. Hey, Brian. Thanks very much for having me. And it was great. We had a chance to meet. You took me through the Pentagon, which is, uh, was, was fantastic. Uh, and now I'm excited that your, your book is now out telling your side of the story because you kind of resigned abruptly. Before we get to the news of the day, could you tell everyone, refresh everyone's memory during the pandemic, what led to your resigning? Sure. Um, if, if you remember in March of 2020, uh, we had a COVID outbreak on one of our uh, aircraft carriers in the Pacific. And so we ordered that ship into Guam so that we could figure out a way to quarantine sailors, get them uh, clean of the virus, and then get the ship back to sea and performing its duties. It's the only supercarrier that we have out there in the Pacific at the time. And, you know, China's become much more aggressive in the region, and it was very important for us to, to maintain that presence there and, and maintain the ship on station. In the, in the early days of the crisis, I had my chief of staff reach out to the commanding officer of the ship and uh, tell him that, you know, I was very interested in coming out to Guam to make sure that they were getting everything they needed on the ground. And he sort of waved us off from that and said it would be a distraction. And then a couple hours later, he sent out a letter uh, that was on unsecured channels uh, about how dire the situation was and citing some statistics that the ship's doctors had also um, uh, promoted in a letter about potentially 10 sailors being dead or 50 sailors being dead within 10 days if we didn't evacuate the ship completely. And it created a bit of a panic and a, and a media onslaught that gave the impression that people in Washington, including the Trump administration, were not interested in what was going on out there, and weren't paying attention to it. And nothing could have been farther from the truth. We had mobilized like 900 people on Guam to make sure that the ship had everything they needed. And um, so I made the decision after talking to a lot of different people to include the strike group commander who was on the ship at the time, um, who the captain did not consult with before putting this letter out. Yeah. Um, and uh, he basically told me that the captain told him that he intentionally did not talk to him about it because he knew that uh, the, the uh, admiral would not let him send it out. And so to me, it, it was just an indication that he did something uh, that was premeditatively insubordinate to his commander. And you know, my job as a secretary at the time, I was acting secretary of the Navy at the time, 
my responsibility in Title Ten responsibility is to make sure our, our ships are manned, trained, and equipped um, to the highest possible standard. And the ship was in a crisis, and I just lost uh, trust and confidence in this particular commanding officer, and so I made the decision right. to relieve him, which then turned into a massive uh, media uh, backlash against the administration, against me. And um, it, it came to the point where I decided I needed to go out to Guam and make sure that everything that I had been saying about what was going on on the ground was actually taking place. And when I got there, I realized that the captain's letter had actually actually delayed the accessibility of hotel rooms uh, in Guam. The governor of Guam told me that the, the letter caused delays because the, the population was now afraid that yeah. thousands of sailors were going to come into their hotel rooms and infect the whole population. And so um, during that during that time, I had an opportunity to go talk to the crew, and um, I gave them a very stern message about you know about fear and about um, about their captain and how it wasn't really their job to love their captain; it was their duty to love the country and the constitution and the people that work for them and to take care of them. And that is my job to worry about their captain, but right. they, it's, they were very obviously really liked him and um, were very upset with me for making the decision. So then you resign right I, after I did, I came back to Washington and it, it was pretty obvious that the blue side of Congress was not very happy with me and calling for my resignation. And, and I was only the acting secretary at the time. We had less than a year left in the administration, and I had been very aggressive in trying to push a lot of different things. And I just realized that I would be spending most of my time, time, time trying to defend myself and my staff trying to defend myself and my actions. And I just didn't think that was in the best interest of the Navy uh, or the nation at the so, time. So that, but yeah. long term, it ended up going back your ways. We found more and more about this. And the fact that he put that out publicly jeopardized our security. And you said later he admitted that you did the right thing. It's in your book. Yes, uh, I met with him. He was the last person I met with on Guam, and I sat down with him. And I sat down and said, look, I, I apologize because I didn't get a chance to call you and tell you why I was relieving you. And I started explaining it to him, and he said, sir, you don't have to say another word. I respect what you've been doing as the secretary, and uh, I put you in a really tough position. And had I been in your shoes, I would have relieved me too, um, but I did it for the crew. And I mm-hmm. told him that you know that was noble intentions, but the consequences of those um, those actions really uh, caused a lot of trouble. And mostly, what it did was it took the Navy and put it in the center of a COVID crisis, which the entire nation at the time, as you remember, was having a very difficult time struggling with this. And my my whole thing was I did not want the Navy in the middle of the COVID crisis. I felt the nation needed to know that if anyone could handle uh, a situation like this, it was the Navy. And um, unfortunately, we were right. in the center of it. And um, and some of the things that I did, I don't think helped. Um, I think um, I could have chosen my words better. But at the same time, um, I felt like the crew needed to hear a strong message from their leader. And so that's what I delivered. Tom Odley is our guest, former United States Undersecretary of the Navy, author of Vectors, Heroes, Villains, Heartbreak on the Bridge of the U.S. Navy. So just to bring you to uh, into the eye of the storm, into the Red Sea, the USS Gerald uh, Far Ford is heading back home or back to its original assignment. It's been extended, but now it's left. And in comes a Iranian warship who they've had a spy ship in the area kind of coaching the Houthi rebels how to disrupt commercial shipping. If you were in charge here, would you like a more aggressive posture than we've been seeing? Evidently, the word is we can knock down the rockets or the drones, but we can't knock down the shooter or the launcher. Is that acceptable? Well, you know, first of all, even as a secretary of the Navy, I would not be in charge of decisions like that. Those are, those are the president's decisions, ultimately. Um, my 
my point of view on this whole thing is I think it is a bit absurd that we are are saying that we're warning the Houthis not to do this, um, as if we have to warn people not to take aggressive and lethal action against commercial shipping or against our own ships. I mean, that that is self-evident that they should not be doing that, and they know that they should not be doing that. So from my perspective is this response of being proportionate, I think that that, um, that time has come and gone. I think that uh, it's pretty clear that the Iranians are behind and supporting this, and I think that it's it's come to time where they need to to pay a price uh, for this disruption. And, you know, anyone that would argue that that would be escalating, I mean, we're not the ones that are escalating. Um, there are other people on the other side who are escalating this, yes. this conflict. And um, so our responsibility, um, both as a nation and as an ally, um, I believe, is to, to take action a lot more disproportionately uh, to ensure that this stuff doesn't continue to go on. You, you guys had uh, Iran in a box. Uh, and whether you like it or not, by by lifting that deal and and uni, basically unifying their enemies, uh, they pretty much held, laid the groundwork for the Abraham Accords, which really scared Iran, obviously, to the core. My question to you is, they're out of that box now. They took advantage of this administration's weak posture. Now, how do you get them back in a box, hitting their surrogates or hitting them? Well, it's a very good it's a very good question, Brian. It's a very complicated question. I don't know that I have the answer to it, but it also it's it's not just a single action that's going to make a difference here. I mean, it it has to be an entire change in policy, and and I I think unfortunately in leadership because they have to believe um, that we're serious about this. And I I think over the past you know three or four years, uh, we have not given as a nation given them the indication that we are. And so, um, yeah, perhaps the Biden administration can change course at this mm-hmm. at this stage, um, but it's going to take a sustained effort to sort of put them put them back and to mm-hmm. have them understand that their actions are not acceptable. Tom, congratulations on the book. Go out, guys! Everyone, pick it up. Uh, and uh, if, if Trump wins, or if any Republican wins and wants to put you back in office, I think we'd be better off as a country for it. Tom, thanks so much. Oh, you're very kind, Brian. Thank you so much. You got it. I'll pick up his book, Victors, uh, Vectors, Heroes, Villains, and the Heartbreak on the Bridge of the U.S. Navy. Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. Now, the Brian Kilmeade Show joins Fox Business's Varney and Company with Stuart Varney, live on your radio and on Fox Business. Here's Brian Kilmeade. So after I'm done on Stuart Varney, after I get on FBN, I'll have some room on the back end, so you can call 1-866-408-7669. And then, of course, you can be on with us Saturday. Our show's lining up pretty big, so when you watch it, 9 o'clock Eastern Time, One Nation on Fox News Channel. Uh, we got uh, Fred Smith. He's the founder of FedEx. His idea of overnight delivery was uh, conjured up in college. And, man, did he execute it with FedEx. He's got some opinions uh, on what's going on in the conflicts around the world, as well as what's going on with our economy, which I think you've got to be fascinated to find out. He wrote a speech about it. And uh, let me uh, kind of clue me into it. We're also going to talk to uh, Coach Tommy Tuberville, who is working on college football and basketball reform in major Division One sports, about getting payment but reasonable, not making this the Wild West. There are no rules now. You may love it if you're Alabama. You may love it if you're Texas. You may love it if you're Michigan, but not for the good of the sport and this whole uh, this whole 
uh, and this whole transfer pool portal. Time and the man on the right so hand side listen. of the screen is indeed Brian Kilmeade. Listen to this, Brian. I know you know about this. I want your opinion. USA Boxing updated their guidelines to allow transgender women, biological males, to compete against women. But they must have had gender reassignment surgery and proof of hormone treatment. Got all of that. Brian, this is a contact sport. It's not like swimming. Is anyone thinking about safety here? It is the nuttiest thing ever. You would yeah. think these bodies would understand, you know, there is women's boxing. Uh, there is, now there's women's flag football. Uh, and it's a, I think it's going to be a college sport soon. And with, when it comes to women's wrestling, there's women's wrestling. So there's women around women. You should not be allowed to do this. It is dangerous. It is an actual assault on a woman, even if she is trained like an elite athlete, to get in that ring. Uh, so this is the craziest thing ever. Maybe it's USA Boxing's uh, hope to get some publicity when they used to be the hottest thing with the 76 team with Sugar Ray Leonard. We remember Holyfield's team in 84. Uh, we remember like some of these great fighters that used to come out of there. The USA, USA Boxing used to be a, an event to see. It used to be fighters to follow. Maybe this is their way to get publicity, but someone's got to sober up out there and stop, which is going to be a death in the ring. Remember, they shortened championship fight from 12 to 15 rounds. They're worried about head injuries. They stopped giving money, excuse me, points for aggression because they thought boxing was getting too physical. So it made the sport boring. Now they say, I got an idea. Let's get a guy fighting a woman who who has got gender dysphoria, and let's see what happens. And better yet, train that guy transitioning to be a woman and let him beat up on that woman. It is insane. Do you remember, I think it was a volleyball player who was at her teeth broken, I think it was, or maybe it was a hockey game. It was field hockey. Field hockey. Field hockey, that's right. Got them in the teeth because a, a, a rather aggressive transgender male um, just uh, just pay, came on with the strength. I, you're, you're right. The same thing can happen in boxing. This is crazy stuff, isn't it? It no, is. Uh, people say it's tolerance. It's not tolerance. No, know what it's tolerance no, it's for? You're not playing. So you're making these decisions. You sit there in your suit and you go back to your desk with your pocket protector and you go, I got a good idea to show how woke I am. I'm going to let people go fight each other who are trying to change genders. You try it. It's not fair to the women who train right. around the clock, especially in boxing. You're up at 4 in the morning, you're running. You never eat with the rest of the folks. You're never really off. Yeah. You're literally fighting every day for, to make a living or to get that trophy of the gold medal, and then someone's going to waltz in and literally rip it from you. It's as if someone paid off the judges while putting uh, you physically in, je- physically in jeopardy. You've got to listen to this one. The founder of the athleisure brand, Lululemon, slamming that company's diversity push. Here's the quote. They're trying to become like the gap, everything to everybody. And I think the definition of a brand is that you're not everything to everybody. You've got to be clear that you don't want certain customers coming in. Brian, I've never heard a retailer say, you've got to be sure you keep some people out. Never heard that before. You know, this whole ESG push to be socially conscious when you invest, uh, the sanctimonious behavior is going by the wayside, thankfully. And now this type of marketing where you hurt your business model in order to be accepted, I don't know, by the Golden Globe crowd, I'm not sure. But this whole thing is basically Lululemon is for athletes. And a lot of it is body-hugging stuff that you look great in, but I don't look as good in. So that's why maybe 
you could be a model there, Stuart. But his yeah. whole thing was Chip Wilson is his name. He is the billionaire founder who was on the who was uh, there running the company to 2007, chairman of the board to 2013. He said the models wearing the clothes look unhealthy and sickly. That's not his image. So to me, why are you blowing up a successful brand yeah. that was cutting its way through the clutter? It makes no sense to me. There's no, there's no, there's no uh, political correctness when it comes to success in business. There are so many areas where it feels like it's the world turned upside down. Kilmeade, you're all right. Thanks very much for being with us. We'll right, see you uh, again. You're better, Stuart. Soon. Thank you. you. Appreciate it. Todd, I want to just got a few minutes on the other end, but I do want to uh, talk about what else. This is. I'll expand on that story a little bit. This is what this Lululemon founder, his name is Chip Wilson, said. He said, when it comes to modern-day Lululemon playbook, uh, he said, there is his personal, uh, and you guessed it, controversial preferences, like his distaste for uh, Lululemon's whole diversity and inclusion thing, an appearance of people in ads who he claims are unhealthy and sickly and not inspirational. And uh, he outlined that to Forbes. They're trying to become like the Gap and everything else. So that is a huge problem. I thought, listen— I was uh, every Lululemon I walk, uh, I come through. The the salespeople are fantastic. The the quality of the product. Just as a consumer, I'm no expert, fashion expert. I thought, wow, this is great. I love another thing that they do. That if you're coaching a youth team and you can show proof of that, they give you a discount. So it kind of gets that loyalty of let me go in there or send my team in there. Uh, and I like it. And what is wrong? If you are not in the best shape that you want to be in, you don't need to see somebody in bad shape in a, as a model. I don't mind looking through a GQ or uh, men's health and fa- men's fitness magazine and thinking to myself, well, they're in better shape than me. I feel bad about myself. I don't feel that way. That's inspiration, motivation. That's what it's all about. What is wrong with the competition aspect? Hey, I want to get like that. It's January, what, what day is it? January 4th, January 5th, whatever it is. It's uh, January 4th, excuse me. I, I, you know, I picked a men's, uh, I picked a men's journal. You know, these muscle guys, I'm not going to take the steroids to, to look like the rock. But, you know, I look at these guys at uh, men's fitness, and I think I, I want to get that way. All right? I'm not going to shave my body, even though it would probably give my chest additional definition. But I will not shave my chest. But I can say to myself, I'm going to work out a little harder to get closer to that look. That's aspirational, inspirational. You can make you feel bad. That's because you're not motivated. That's a big uh, – That's I kind of made a left turn there. But Chip Wilson, founder of Lululemon, which is the worst name for a clothing store ever. Uh, but I love your concept. And I love the fact that they're abusing it and you're not okay with it. I'm Brian Kilmeade. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Keep it here. And remember, I will not shave my chest, but I will stay within myself. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. I'm Brian Kilmeade. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. 2024, just my third show in, and I am pumped up for an exciting year. That's just for stuff I do know. You know, from the Iowa caucus to New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, Super Tuesday, all the court cases with Donald Trump that's certainly going to be a distraction uh, while being insightful and and for the president of the, of the United States, literally his freedom's at stake, as well as his his quest to be president, and then you wonder about the rest of the field and what it's going to look like at the end if Donald Trump will still be standing and will Joe Biden still be standing. Dan Senor is going to be on this hour. Mike Rogers is standing by. He's also very interested in November. He's running for Senate in Michigan. So he's former chairman of the House of Permanent Select Committee. So let's get to the big three. 
Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There is this sort of open war on black progress, black history. Um, Claudine Gay, the president uh, of Harvard University, at least up until she resigned, um, is now the latest casualty of that. Oh, please. Anything but racism. Yep, racing to claim it. From ousted Harvard President Claudine Gay to Al Sharpton, the plagiarist claims victim status and shouts sexism, racism, because she got scrutiny on what she achieved to get to her position. And it turns out she cheated on a lot of it. Things to get kicked out of Harvard. She became president at Harvard. And now she blames the media, conservatives, and racists. Number two. You know, I look at Donald Trump. And he's running on a lot of the things he promised to do in 2016, but then did not do. You look at any of these polls head-to-head with Biden. Trump, it's pretty much even. I defeat Biden by 17 points. Flooding to Trump from House leadership to Club for Growth conservatives to Senator Tom Cotton. They are running to Trump even before the Iowa caucus starts. What do you do if you're Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley then especially when they just want to go after Trump and call him half Satan, half Hitler. Number one. The fact that we have one governor in the state of Texas who is refusing to cooperate with other, other governors, and it's a r- remarkable failure of governance to refuse to cooperate. Uh, that is Alejandro Mayorkas, an embarrassment in every sense of the word, Homeland Security Secretary. The biggest Republican delegation ever went to the border on Wednesday to see for themselves uh, what's broken and how to fix it. They're actually talking about reforms that could work. Will they make the move to actually do it? Will Democrats show some flexibility for the good of the country? They, for now, are not because they are blaming Republicans, believe it or not. Mike Rogers joins us. Mike, great to hear from you. Brian, happy new year. This is the year it all changes, my friend. Yeah, the, you're going from Congress, uh, to, from the from the military to the FBI, uh, to Congress. And then you took a break, made some money, I hope. And now you want to go back to the Senate where you're going to make considerably less. Uh, but <laughs> Well, listen, it's, it, you should, it should be a service and a sacrifice at the same time. I so understand. We, we've managed to do both, I think. Right. Uh, first off, i got to ask you about what's going on at the border. You know what, what a deal looks like. I was talking to Senator Langford. We're going back and forth. They, have, they did negotiate all throughout the break except for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And they did say there's progress. It's tough, but there's progress. You know some of the asylum rules that got to change, let alone the wall technology and, and building up and, and building up the, the Border Patrol. Besides that, do you think they're going to do it? Do you think there's enough leverage on the Democrats wanting war funding for Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan to do it? I, I got to believe at some point that the Democrats are begging the president to do something. I mean, people are outraged by this. I mean, outraged. And so I think uh, I think they need to take us. The Democrats need to try to take this off the table. I don't think they'll do what needs to be done. I don't think they'll get everything. I think the Republicans should take what they can get and then remind voters for the next six months who gave them three hundred and fifty billion dollars last year of expense, which, by the way, just taking care of the illegal immigrants, which, by the way, Brian, is more than uh, the cost of every Michigan teacher and every Michigan state trooper for 15 years. There's a lot better places we should be spending this money, and it's bringing crime. It's bringing some health concerns up into these neighborhoods. 
this is no longer a southern border problem, and I'm glad so many people went down. I'm glad they're trying to get some negotiated settlement here. But I think there's going to be a lot more to work. The one thing that we know that Biden could do today, the Remain in Mexico policy that Trump put in place when he was president, would immediately turn off that spigot of, hey, come on in, you know, go to New York, get a hotel room. You know, I, I wanted to go to the, uh, the you know, watch the ball drop in New York City. It was, obviously, everything was booked. So my wife and I went, Brian, and we said, hey, we're illegal immigrants. We got a great hotel. We registered to vote there, apparently, and, uh, and I got 100 bucks in a crack card. I mean, yeah. it is really getting ridiculous. And I, uh, I man, they've got to do something. And it's getting dangerous. That's the other thing. Really dangerous. So I don't think uh, I'm. I'm pretty sure I think the move of the year to help the country. People think it's a political play, and it is, but it helps. Is when Governor Abbott uh, started shipping these illegal immigrants on after they said they where they wanted to go. He gave them free bus rides there for Chicago, D.C., uh, Kamala Harris's house. Dropped them off right in the corner, and he said, "Good luck in Washington. You don't have to stay in Texas. It's not going to be just our problem. It's going to be our nation's problem." And suddenly, these blue state mayors are in trouble. So Mayor Adams now told everybody, you got to only come during certain days with your buses. you got to tell me who's on that bus. And if we don't like it, you're not going to be able to come. So what they did now is drop them in New Jersey. And when they went to New Jersey, the governor quickly said, you better get on a train to New York City. Do you believe this is going on? I, I mean, we've watched it unfold. I mean, this is one of the greatest travesties. Because remember, it's not just, you know, people saying, well, it was compassion or whatever. All of these kids, for for the uh, folks who have kids, and the ones that really worry about me from a national security perspective are certainly the uh, uh, military-age males that are coming over unaccompanied. We just have no idea who they are and what they're up to. But the ones that do bring their kids, how, they're going to your local school, uh, and the teachers are already overwhelmed. Now you have English as a second language in addition to trying to uh, get other kids in America back up to reading level, which they are not. And if you think about what a travesty that is, Brian, already 60 percent nearly, it's like 57 percent of high school seniors last year couldn't read at the sixth grade level in America. And this is only going to compound that problem. Uh, It is just creating wave of problem after wave of problem. Here in Michigan, we had organized crime gangs come across the southern border operating in Michigan, doing very high-end operations. They brought uh, uh, electronic gear to disrupt your alarm system. They brought uh, electronic gear to disrupt police radios, and we're doing these high-end home invasions. It's, you know, that southern border is coming to a neighborhood near you. If it's either going to be in your school, and which is already overwhelmed, you're going to, your police are trying to deal with it, your public health officials, they're bringing stuff up. Normally when you go through a process, you get chopped. Make sure you're not bringing polio back into the United States. Guess what? None of that's happening. Uh, The Chinese are coming up. And what does the Biden administration do? Uh, They go from a 25 or 30 question vetting process down to five just to get them in here. I don't know if they've checked lately, but China has been rattling its saber uh, and having adult age military males flying across the border. Probably not in our best interest right now. It it is a crisis uh, of which is all self made. That's the travesty here. And that's why we've got to change it. All right, I want to talk about what's happening in Israel and tap into your intelligence background, your FBI background. But I want to ask you what's happened with the Michigan's Republican Party. I hear it's falling into complete disarray. They're looking to replace their state chairperson. And you guys are going to be in a battle for every seat anyway. Why? Uh, what's behind the chaos? And do you feel it as a Senate candidate, Mike Rogers? 
Well, I will tell you, Brian, what we're doing, uh, yes, it's in disarray. I hope they get their act together. There's lots and lots of conversations across the state with with people who are uh, who have the sole purpose in mind of being a part of the party to, to get a conservatives elected and change the direction of the country. There's lots and lots of those people. And so I would argue to people who are listening to this thinking Michigan's done, it's just the opposite. It's inspiring a whole new wave of people who want to get uh, want to elect Republicans. They just might not be doing it through the official party system. I hope it still changes. I, I still believe there's time. I know there's an effort underfoot. But what we're doing in our campaign, Ryan, and you, if you have to build infrastructure, if you're going to win these things in a state like Michigan, we're just starting to build that infrastructure. So things that this party might do, we're just bringing into the campaign. Voter ID and uh, voter influence and all of the things that a party might do and engage in, we're just bringing and making a part uh, of our uh, uh, of our campaign, and we're also going to help state house candidates and other candidates around the state uh, because we will be the top of the ticket race, other than the president. Uh, and so that that becomes really, really important to have the right candidate, right message, uh, with the right ability to walk in on the first day and get something done. So that's the way we're doing it. We're going to get through it. I know it makes great uh, conversation, but it is not going to impact the races down ticket. Because uh, we're just not going to let it. Right. Uh, so so in Michigan right now, it's an open seat. So, uh, number one, you think, you, I believe your primary, you says in August? Yeah, a little late, no doubt. Um, but as we're, we're doing just fine now. So, I, as I said, we're going to build that infrastructure starting now. Our internal polls have us 10 points up. There's, I don't know, there's, uh, I think seven people have said they're running. You know, who gets on the ballot is a whole other story. But uh, of the current field, we're 10 points ahead, the nearest uh, the nearest person, certainly in the Republican primary. And here's the good news, and this is the most important thing. A primary is one thing. It's the general election. You want to change the way America's working, we have got to take back the uh, United States Senate. Uh, I'm uh, ahead of the likely Democrat opponent by a, a, a pretty healthy number. Uh, they were down around 30. I was up around 53, if you can believe it. So we're uh, that's our internal polling. Uh, we feel very, very confident mm. uh, that we're going to build the right structure, get the get the right people engaged, and people are fired up for somebody that can actually walk in and has a, is a proven conservative, has actually flipped a, a Democrat seat in their career, and actually performed the things that they said they would do when they got there. Really, really important. And so um, we're feeling pretty good about it. I I, I know that the and I'd rather be me in this where everyone is today than any other person on the, on the ticket, for sure. So if you look head to head, as I was talking to Mark Teese in previous hour, uh, Nikki Haley beats Joe Biden by about 17 points. But she's trailing Joe, Donald Trump by even more than that on most national polls and in New Hampshire, as well as Iowa. Yesterday, Donald Trump got a huge uh, bunch of endorsements, all the leadership in the House, including Senator Tom Cotton in the Senate. And Governor Kristi Noem was on the ground campaigning for him in Iowa. Listen to her. Cut 23. What President Trump believes and what he will do and what he will implement works and it will benefit the families that are there. So while we look at the crises that are going on around the world, we would never have the situation going on like we see in the Middle East right now if he had been in the White House. We would never see what was going on with Russia and Ukraine. He would be strong. He'd be strong against North Korea. We wouldn't have a world in chaos if he was still in the White House. And we need to get him back in the White House as soon as we possibly can. Well, is there anything you disagree with with what she said? I don't. Uh, And here's the other part of it. And this is big for a place like Michigan, uh, where if you look nationally, the middle class has declined because we uh, have walked away. The Democrats have walked away from people who actually get up and go to work 
for a living every day. I, I worked in a car factory. I understand these people uh, and their families and their concerns. They're my friends and neighbors. I will tell you this, uh, Brian, they are wanting someone who walks in and doesn't have to wait around much to know how to get this thing turned around, and their pocketbooks are getting killed. That 20% higher you know, Christmas dinner uh, than it was in 2020 has a real and lasting impact on these families, and they know it. And so I do think uh, people are saying, and, and I know the pundits are, aren't going to get this, but these are folks who say, I don't want to mess around with this. I know what I got before. It's, it's going to be Trump and Biden, and I would have Trump in there to make sure that my family my grocery bill starts going down. We're not entangled in the world. We actually show leadership in the world. I mean, I, these are the conversations I hear. So I, I think that's why you're seeing this move and coalescing around Donald Trump. Two things have happened, uh, and we're used to this with the war on terror. Uh, yesterday, uh, two days ago, over in Lebanon, uh, the— Israelis uh, took out Salai Aruri, the founder of the Hamas military wing, who did a lot of the planning uh, for the horrible October 7th attack that was unpro- unprovoked on Israel. And then the, yesterday, we understand we took out one of the militia leaders in Iraq. And we also know the Houthi rebels have been just rocketing us through drones and just um, uh, th- and through the uh, th- uh, and through Yemen with, I guess, just normal rockets uh, going after commercial vessels and us. We finally blew up three of their boats. What what do you think is behind this, and what do you think Iran wants out of this? Do they want us full in? Do they want this fight? Are we wrong to be reluctant to get involved? Well, what you can't do is let the Iranian proxies shoot at American forces and have uh, have no uh, no pushback, no deterrence. And that's exactly what the, the Biden administration has done. And this is what I mean when I say, listen, it's important for us to be leaders in the world, the United States, uh, but be engaged, not entangled. And the decision the Biden administration has made, everything from Afghanistan to taking away our ability to be energy independent, to have to begging for oil from the Saudis, makes us engaged uh, in, or, excuse me, entangled in the Middle East in a way that, that has them kind of uh, wringing their hands and talking to themselves about what to do. There's been over 100 attack on U.S. Uh, uh, soldiers in the Middle East, uh, and they're done through Iranian proxies, mainly in Iraq. Uh, that's, that's most of the, 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 the leader that they killed was a, uh, a Shia group that was is financed and supported by Iran. All of that is not not coincidental. It is by design from the Iranians. And so, you know, finally, yes, good on you for doing it, but don't wait. Every time they hit, try to hit a U.S. soldier, right. they need to pay a price for it. And the Houthis, Iranian back, Iranian supported. Remember, the, uh, the Biden administration took them off the terrorist list, which defied logic to me. Uh, and that's, again, why they're entangled there now. Uh, and the Iranians stepped up weapons and training and intelligence providing to the Houthis, which uh, are attacking the Saudis, and the, they're trying to be separatists in Yemen. Mm. I mean, all of these things are results of really bad decisions uh, by, on behalf of the Biden administration, and we're paying a price. This love affair mm. they have with Iran defies logic to me, uh, and it is setting yeah. us up for big, bigger problems. Yeah, admit you were wrong. Uh, that would help. Uh, Mike Rogers, yeah, thanks so much. Helps. Best of luck in your Senate run over in Michigan. Appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, sir. Talk you got to it. Back with your calls in just a moment. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Dan Sino will bring us upside uh, inside the IDF's quest over in Gaza in just a moment. Don't move.
the talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. All right, we are back. Uh, Dan Senor coming up shortly. A couple of things that are going on right now that I find uh, fascinating, and that is uh, Ron DeSantis is going to be on tomorrow. Nikki Haley is going to be on, I'm sure, shortly. I know they got town halls. Nikki Haley on Monday, Ron DeSantis on Tuesday, and then it'll be Donald Trump right after that. It looks like it's going to be a one-on-one debate, but at the same time that, uh, Donald Trump will be doing his town hall. It's going to be interesting to see him on Fox with, with Martha as well as Brett Baer. It'll be a different type of town hall, but I'm sure the enthusiasm will be high, and I'm sure everybody else is just waiting for Donald Trump to say something that will be in, in, inciting. So right now you see a big emphasis on January 6th as we get close to that. They're going to mark the day as the worst day, worst in Pearl Harbor in American history. Then I understand Joe Biden is going to go to South Carolina where there's a, a shooting in a church, uh, race-related. And then he's going to go to Valley Forge and talk about how, uh, what we did in sacrifice to form our country and how Donald Trump puts it all at risk. Do you know it's only January? That's how they think it's going to be Trump. And they say that we have to not give you a choice. It's either Joe Biden or the end of the nation. Not Joe Biden's better. The other guy will destroy the country. That's a tough sell, don't you think? He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. I think some of the redeployments that we're seeing, sending Israel sending some troops up to the northern border to protect that. Israel is taking the right course in proportionate response because they don't want a war on two fronts at this point. Not to say that they wouldn't be able to fight it, but that would be an incredible toll on a country of nine million people if both Hezbollah and Hamas were to be going uh, against Israel full force. And that is, uh, of course, uh, some of the crew responsibility and some of the strategy when it comes to the IDF, what they're doing in Gaza, what they're doing in targeting uh, the Hamas leaders. Uh, a lot of them, one was located in Lebanon and the role they have in possibly the explosion in Iran. But I think that's highly unlikely. Dan Senor joins us now, former foreign policy advisor under the Bush administration and Mitt Romney, author of The Genius of Israel. And he's also got a podcast. Uh, that is now out and available. So go look up Dan Senor's podcast. Dan, welcome back. Hey, Brian. Good to be with you. Hey, uh, Dan, first off, I was on with Dan Hoffman when word about that explosion at Soleimani's, uh, at Soleimani's grave that killed yeah. over 100. Is that something you think that Israel will be involved in? You know, I don't know uh, is is the honest answer. Uh, I have much more confidence that even though Israel has not claimed responsibility that Israel uh, was involved with the uh, the operation against uh, Salah Al-Uri, the, uh, the the senior Hamas official. As for the gravesite, I find that that situation perplexing only because while I don't have information that indicates that Israel was responsible for Al-Uri, it, there's a logic to why they would go after him. It makes sense to me. I can connect the dots. The, the explosion at at uh, at the gravesite in Iran just it doesn't. I don't. I don't see the logic. I don't see the strategic value. Uh, obviously, Israel hasn't claimed responsibility. No one's claimed responsibility, so that one just makes less sense to me. I think there's more there that we don't know than we do know, and um, I, I just don't see it. Yeah, I, I guess you, you could be right. Here's what Liam Panetta said: Cut thirty. It smells an awful lot like uh, terrorists, like ISIS or opposition forces in Iran. So I think they better be sure. 
just exactly who's responsible for this before they decide to suddenly go out and start attacking others. Right. Uh, And do you think Iran wants a direct fight with Israel? Don't you think they would have started that a while ago? I don't think Iran wants a direct fight with Israel. I think Iran wants to stoke chaos in the region. Uh, I think uh, Iran wants Israel bogged down uh, fighting with its various proxy armies, obviously Hamas, October 7th and beyond. Uh, I think that Iran would not be disappointed if Hezbollah were somehow drawn in. Obviously, Iran wants the Houthis out of Yemen uh, drawn in. They're, they're, they're actually overtaking Hezbollah, perhaps, right now as Iran's most important proxy in the region. Um, so I think Iran wants Israel under siege from multiple fronts. And it wants its proxy armies doing it. It's not clear to me that Iran itself wants to get drawn into it directly. The other uh, objective I think Iran has, I mean, I think there are two other primary objectives. One is establishing its hegemonic position in the region. It wants to be the most dominant player in the Middle East. It wants to be the the kind of superpower, if you will, of the Middle East. Uh, and it, it and a weakened Bogdan Israel is you know serves that objective. And I think they want the U.S. to look weak and disorganized and directionless and um and and um and vulnerable and fragile and i think in in that sense iran is doing a pretty good job yeah uh they're doing a good job of creating chaos and getting us off the abraham accords path uh but they really you know obviously israel has no choice but to attack back but iran's getting what they want in chaos and and a lot of people in this country seem to be siding with Hamas. How surprised are you, Dan, that we're seeing this sustained pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian movement? They're shutting down uh, flights, shutting down the airports, uh, airlines to JFK Airport, shutting down uh, bridges, and still riding a regular surge riding on a regular basis. I got to tell you, Brian, I find it uh, both shocking and incredibly unsettling. Um, there is a mob mindset that is sweeping certain demographics, younger demographics in this country, and it's 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 um, catalyzing uh, destructive behavior, behavior that is not only destructive to Jews uh, and that are scary for Jews like me and 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 family members of mine, but is also destructive to just regular non-Jews, working class people who are trying to do their jobs. You know, they stormed Macy's uh, a week ago and just were wreaking havoc inside the Macy's store, not far from where you are right now, Uh, while just regular people are trying to do their jobs, shutting down public transportation, uh, Grand Central Station, Penn Station, where millions, literally millions of people come in and out of the city every day to go do their jobs and making it impossible for people to come do their jobs. These are many people who work on hourly wages. Uh, it's just it's who are they punishing? What what is this about? So I find that very upsetting. And then the last thing I would say, if you look at moments of disorder and protest and even anarchy in the modern history of the United States, you can go back to the Vietnam War. Look, I disagreed with the tactics of many of the protesters on college campuses and whatnot during the Vietnam War, but they would argue. Look, I don't I don't believe in this war. I don't want to be they would argue. I don't want to be drafted and and you know, and tens of thousands of Americans are being killed in the Vietnam War and I don't want to be called up and served. So I'm protesting. Okay, I get I disagree with the tactics. Uh but but there 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 was a rationale that one could at least engage with in that that was somewhat yeah. based in fact. Uh if you fast forward to today, what are these people protesting? 
what, what do they think? They're, they don't know what they're talking about. It doesn't affect their lives in any way. In any way, no one's asking these these kids to go up and fight with the IDF. In fact, the IDF goes out of its way to say they'll fight this war on their own. They need help, resources from the United States, but they don't need blood and bodies and, and in, in the form of, of Americans fighting this war. Um, they say, well, they're colonizers. This is some colonial project. Again, completely not based in fact. They just have historical facts way off. So there's no, you know, they, they think they're somehow aligned with Hamas. Hamas that drags gays and lesbians through the streets, uh, the back of cars, and throws them off the top of buildings as a form of capital punishment because of their sexual orientation, or that, compl- that suppresses free sp- speech, uses uh, innocent civilians as cannon fodder. That's who they're locking arms with? Um, they they just don't. They, it's it's like they don't even. It's willful ignorance. They are choosing to not know anything, and that is why this is so different from previous protest movements we have seen about geopolitical events uh, in this country. I, I, you know, Brian, you know, I, I was very involved with the Iraq War. And I remember the protests against the Iraq War in the early 2000s following uh, 9-11. Again, I disagreed with them, but there were people who opposed us getting involved in a, in a war 7,000 miles or 8,000 miles away and whatever. I don't want to rehash those arguments, but, but they had a point of view. I had a point of view. Okay, again, what's the what, – no one's asking these young people to get involved with what's happening in Israel and Gaza and Hamas. No one's asking them to help Israel defend its border. If they say they're worried about human rights and they're worried about the atrocities, really, that's what they're worried about? So where were the protests in Syria when, when Bashar al-Assad was slaughtering hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Sunni Muslims in the most brutal ways, including using chemical weapons? Where, where's the outrage? Where's the outrage against uh, the Chinese Communist Party locking up over a million Uyghur Muslims? In effectively, what are concentration camps in China? Where's the where's the storming of the streets about that? No, it seems that they're only upset to the point that they want to destroy property, jobs, and lives right. in the United States when it somehow involves so, the Jews. So the American, uh, they did a survey. They said Americans under thirty, seventy-two percent side with the Palestinians, which is nuts because it's 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 not a black and white situation. It takes understanding the history, how we got here. But get this, not only is Biden having trouble winning over young people in the country and Democrats specifically, he's also losing his own staff, many of which are hired to reelect him. They wrote a letter to him. Seventeen current Biden uh, uh, staffers wrote a letter advocating a change in the policy less tilted towards Israelis and more towards the Palestinians. And about a week ago, they went out and protested in front of their own White House. If I'm Joe Biden, I fire every one of them. <laughs> Brian, I got to tell you, when I see this, or these 500 staffers of the administration who signed a petition anonymously, I love that. That's very courageous. And I've never seen an anonymous petition where people don't sign their actual names. But I got to tell you, I worked. I've, I've worked. I've worked on Capitol Hill. I worked in congressional offices beginning in the mid 90s. I've worked on political campaigns. You know, for you know, for. Senate campaigns, presidential campaigns. I've been involved with political, professional political life for a big part of my adult life. When you take on these roles, you are there to serve and advise the office holder or the candidate. That is your job. If you disagree with that candidate, 
then you have the right to choose to not work for that candidate and go work for someone else. But the idea that the sense of entitlement that I work for this candidate or I work for this president and, and I can sit here while working for him. I consider also publicly – it's one thing behind closed doors to make the case to the candidate or the, or the president or the senator or whoever it may be that he should advocate a different position. Fine. Do it behind closed doors. But the idea that, that you have this sense of entitlement, that you're in this position, you disagree with the president's policy, you've tried to persuade the, the, the principal to take a different position, you don't get your way, fine. Then you go outside the building and you protest him publicly. It would never occur to me in a million years, Brian. That 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 and I uh, you know my my podcast I often have friends of mine on the podcast who I've worked with over the years in Republican politics or in foreign policy, and I think of these people I've I've worked with for decades and we rehash old stories because they inform what's going on today in the world and I think to myself none of these people I I know none of my former colleagues or current colleagues it would never occur to any of us in a million years the chutzpah to well, think you know why you know why Dan because they don't hire people for their loyalty and skills they hire people to check boxes. Oh, I got a transsexual. I have a Hispanic. I have right. a uh, I have a male over six eleven. So it's all checking boxes. It's not qualities. He did it with his vice president. He didn't want the best person. He wanted a woman of color, which yeah. makes a woman of color feel like as though they've been the president's been cornered to pick them. So this is what happens. No one's loyal to Joe Biden that he hires. Yeah, it, it, if what you're saying is true, it's tragic. Uh, I uh, I I just I. You know, my I, 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 I'd like to encourage young people to get involved in politics and get involved with political activism and get involved in public service. It's a worthy career path. I have gotten tremendous reward from it, uh, and, 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 um, and I've been gratified by being able to play a right. small role in our, in our American project. I, I just feel like these young people are going into it with a completely different mindset. They're not there to – there to serve. They're not there to help. They're, they're there to, to kind of, um, you know, pose. They're there to make a point. They're there to, uh, to um, make it about them rather than the larger project. Uh, Dan, uh, the lastly, 15% approval rating for Benjamin Netanyahu. They say as soon as things settle down, they're going to call an election. He's going to be out. What do people tell you about the politics on the ground in Israel? Look, his his Likud party is very unpopular. He's personally very unpopular right now, which is understandable. Anytime a country goes through a major security setback in Israel, uh, the prime minister on whose watch it happened uh, takes a big hit. That happened to Golda Meir after the Yom Kippur War. When Israel was surprised, it happened to Ehud Omer when he was prime minister during the 2006 Lebanon War. Um, and it's happening to Benjamin Netanyahu. The added disadvantage that Netanyahu has is he's also just been around for a long time. He's, he's long a serving prime minister. At some point, electorates get tired of, of even successful prime ministers. It happened to Churchill in the UK. It happened to Thatcher in the UK. Uh, so I think it was already happening to Netanyahu. And then you add on top of it the war. Uh, I think he is not going to be gone from office anytime soon because – Right-wing governments, conservative governments in Israel, when they do fall, they usually fall because of the right, not of the left. And I think the right, more or less, right now in Israel, that his coalition is going to want to stick together precisely because they're so weak. They don't want to go to the polls. They want to stick together. So you got to ask yourself, what's the precipitating event that's going to lead to elections? 
someone has to leave the coalition for the coalition to fall, to fall below 60 seats, which is you need to be north of 60 seats to, to maintain a government. They got to fall below 60 seats. Then they don't have a majority. Then elections have to be called. I don't see yet mm. who's going to pull out on the right. Um, so I still think there's some time. I still think there's probably three or four months of war fighting that has to play out. I don't see this happening while, while there's major war fighting. Can I imagine there being elections, call it in six to 12 months? Absolutely. I wouldn't be surprised by the fall, Brian, uh, mm -hmm. of 24 if there are elections, which means Israel could be going through elections in the fall. The U.K. is likely, based on what Rishi Sunak said this morning, will be going through elections in the fall. And obviously, we'll be having right. our own presidential election. Dan Senor, thanks so much. We'll be sure to pick up The Genius of Israel, your book that's out, and we and also have uh, your podcast. Uh, go look up Dan Senor. Dan, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. Take care. You got it. Back in a moment. We'll take your calls. one 408 7669 I'm going to blitz right through them all. So line up. Learning something new every day. On the Brian Kilmeade Show. Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, special thanks to everybody who put this hour together. It was always great hearing Dan Senor. A lot's going on in the war and at home. Also, just let me remind you, BrianKilmeade.com coming up on January 21st. Uh, it's all about Teddy and Booker T. I want you to go grab the book. Uh, also, I want to see, uh, uh, hopefully see you in the studio, in the theater, uh, in Juliet, Illinois. Just go to BrianKillMe.com for that uh, and VIP opportunities as well. Let's go to the phones. First stop, WNIS, Virginia Beach. Hank, what's on your mind, Hank? Hey, Brian, I like the way you use that blitz right through it because I want to use the analogy between football and war. I played some football. We never were allowed to get outflanked, and that's exactly what's going on. We're tied down in Ukraine with Russia. We got the situation with Saudi Arabia. He insults the guy over there, calls him a pariah. Then he goes back over there with hand in hat or hat in hand, asks for oil. Now you have the situation with Israel. We got to give them money. And who's the beneficiary of this whole situation? China. They're sitting back watching us get entangled in all this mess. And once we do, because that's why Iran is kind of just poking the bear. They want us to get in a little tiny, you know, like an entanglement. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you'll see China roll into Taiwan. So one thing to keep in mind, if you want to see a model of what China is going to be up against, look at Ukraine. They saw how Russia was throttled. They lost 90 percent of their invading force. They lost, lost a thousand people just last week. But now they're watching USA dissipate. And China must be saying, wait. Uh, yeah, we'll put up with hell as we take Taiwan. We'll take casualties, but we'll eventually take it and the world will get over it just like they're getting over Ukraine. Also, keep in mind, these guys are not these guys are not asking us to fight. They're just asking us to arm. And then we actually pay for this stuff. And in the case of Taiwan, they write checks for it. We could arm all of these other NATO nations. They write money. They will pay for it, which helps our economy. So I see them playing us to a degree, but we got to get ahead of it. Let me just add something. Uh, it looks like ISIS is taking uh, credit for killing over 100 Iranians at Soleimani's uh, four-year, uh, marking his death four years ago. Anthony listen on WVMT in Burlington, Vermont. Anthony. Hey, Brian. Um, I love your show. I love the way you ask questions. Um, I want to get back to the border real quickly. I don't think I, I disagree completely with Biden and, and the policies, but I don't think they're that stupid. There's a there's a reason they're creating this chaos. There's a reason not just votes. There's a reason why the borders are open to create 
chaos around the country. And I, I, I would ask you to start asking that question to some of these folks you talk to, because we, I don't think anybody disagrees. We want to elect people to fix it. But what's the end game? Why, why, why are they doing this? Yeah, well, you mean China and Russia? You know what they want. They want world dominance. They want to change, get us off the dollar. I'll talk about that Saturday with One Nation. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.